given. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 5 and 6. We finished chapter 5 last week, and we'll allude a little bit back to that. But you remember that God, in His uh, sovereign way, of course, has visited Zechariah. He's given them uh, the angel of the Lord, has revealed uh, eight visions. We're going to talk about the eighth vision in just a moment, but uh, the first seven visions we had covered, Zechariah chapter 5, uh, deals with two visions in particular, uh, the flying scroll and, of course, the lady uh, in the ephah and uh, dealing with wickedness. And basically the gist of, of Zechariah chapter 5 is that God is going to deal with sin according to His Word. If you missed last Sunday's message, you can go back and you can watch uh, through uh, some of the social media and different things that of that nature. Any any message, you maybe feel like you just came in, you'd like to know more about what Zechariah is meaning and, and, and what it means as we have preached through verse by verse, then you could go back and you could listen to the... God, God's going to judge sin. Uh, God never turns His eyes or His head away from sin. He's going to judge sin according to the standard. And, and we need to be reminded that though God is merciful, though God is faithful, though God is loving, God does judge sin. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In the nation of Israel, uh, there was uh, nations that was rising up against Israel. And God is going to judge those nations. We're going to see that in Zechariah chapter number 6. And look with me in verse number 1, Zechariah chapter 6 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Now, I've been to Israel several times, and I've never seen mountains of brass. They're not there as far as mountains, what you would look at a brass mountain. Uh, this is a picture. This is judgment. Anytime you see brass in the Bible, you see judgment. These are two mountains. Some commentators believe that this could have been Mount, uh, this could have been the Mount of Olives, and this could have been Mount Zion, where the temple will be. Uh, between those two would be the Valley of Kidron, or the Kidron Valley, which runs between uh, the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Uh, I, I'm not really sure if that's exactly what that is. It could be, but we do know that it's two mountains, and between these two mountains are uh, these horses with chariots, and they're angels that are driving these chariots, and they represent judgment. Now, I want you to notice verse number 2. The Bible says in, in the 6th chapter, In the first chariot were red horses. Red always is a picture of war. In the second chariot were black horses. Black is pestilence. In the white horses, uh, the third chariot, white horses, which is a picture of, of death. It's also a picture of victory, but in this sense, it would be a, a picture of death or conquering. And then the fourth chariot, uh, grizzled and bay horses, or a grayish pale color, which is uh, often disease and pestilence. Black is, of course, death. And, uh, and so these, these horses do have some significance. If you want to read more about uh, horses and their representation, you could go to Revelation chapter 6 and 7, and you could look at those, those horses there, and they do represent, and the Bible does actually say what they represent. Also, you could go to Zechariah chapter 1, and there's some horses listed there, the red horse being the horse that the angel of the Lord is riding upon. There's other horses that are mentioned in that sense. We have a picture here. 
And uh, this is the two mountains, of course, the mountains of brass and the different horses represented. And of course, those that are driving the horses, the chariots, anytime you see chariots in scripture, often it is associated with war or soldiers. And so these, these warriors from heaven, these angels, they are sent from God and they're to judge the Gentile nations. Read a little further in that chapter. The Bible says in verse four, then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, this interpreting angel, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, these are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth and are standing before the Lord of all the earth. So these angels cover the north, the south, the east, the west. These are the angels that are responsible for judging the earth. And they are going all over the earth. The Bible says in verse number six, the black horses, which are very, uh, therein, go forth into the north country. What would the north country be? The north country would have been Babylon. And it looks like to me the white horses, according to verse 6, go after them. So the black and white horses are going up into the enemy of Israel, which would have been Babylon. And then uh, the, the gristled go forth toward the south country. The south country would have been Egypt in that area. Oh, had always been an, a, 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 a enemy of the Jew. And then in verse 7, the Bible says, And the bay went forth and sought to go, that they might walk, notice this, to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. And so they walked to and fro the earth, and they cried, then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit, in the north country. It means, it sounds like to me that there was, uh, they were victorious in this battle with Babylon. Now, church, stay with me because sometimes we can get lost in these visions and they are, I will say to the average reader, they're very difficult to interpret. Even to those that study the word, there's a lot of interpretation that, that can be uh, misapplied and taken out of context. But we understand if we read Zechariah, there's several ways to read Zechariah. The first way is to read Zechariah through a, pop, a prophet prophetic view, meaning that all of this is going to take place in future uh, events, meaning this, I believe, is a good picture of the tribulation period. The world will be judged. Uh, this is going to be a great picture of what the tribulation period looks like. Listen, I, I, I don't want to be around during the tribulation period. Hey, if you're lost in here today, and uh, and listen, if Jesus Christ, we believe that he's coming back, we believe I am a pre-rapture preacher, amen, I, I just believe that. If you believe something else, that's fine, but I, I'm not going to argue with you all day out in the lobby uh, about it, but I just stand, according to some verses, I just stand where I believe that we will be raptured before his rapture is poured out. Also believe that we raptured uh, before the Antichrist is on the scene. Matter of fact, that's going to usher in the Antichrist and the enemies of Israel will rise up. Now here's what we're seeing. We're seeing today a rising up of the, of the nations against Israel. It seems like to me, every nation is against Israel. Sometimes I'm wondering if our nation is against Israel or not. I mean, sometimes it's hard to even see our own nation standing with Israel, but, but we are. In, in a sense. And so I thank God for that. But here, here's my, here's my uh, thing. I, I don't want to be around the tribulation period. You don't want to be around during that time when God pours out his wrath. 
And that's exactly what this looks like to me in Zechariah 6. We, we see a judgment is coming according to Zechariah 5. The, the lady in the ephah, she is trying to get out. She's the wickedness in the, remember the ladies that came and they uh, had the stork wings, they had the big wings and they carry her over to Babylon. Well, this is the judgment of God on Babylon. What is Babylon a representation of? It is the representation of the world and the world system. And so we see some of that in prophetic that God is going to judge the world system and all of the world. His wrath is going to be poured out on the entire world. And we see that in the context of Zechariah chapter 6. Now, I want you to go down with me to verse number 9. We see the word of the Lord came unto me saying, this is Zechariah, take of them the captivity even of Heldiah, there's the first name, and of Tobijah, and of Jediah, which are come from Babylon. So these three men are coming from Babylon, and they're going into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So here's what's taking place. These three men, they travel from Babylon to where Zechariah is with the Jews there in Jerusalem, and they have come to bring a gift. They've come to bring some things. You're going to see that in the context, but this all takes place in the house of a man by the name of Josiah, which his name basically means grace. Uh, Heldiah means uh, robust. You see the name right there, Heldiah, and jo, uh, uh, and then Tob, uh, Tobijah is God's goodness, and Jediah means God knows. I love what J. Vernon McGee said about this. He said, God knows that through his goodness that he would bring a king and put him on the throne, and he'll do it in a robust manner. And he, so he uses the names of these biblical names to say that, hey, all of this is going to usher in the Messiah and he will be the king. Now notice what these three men bring. Stay with me in verse 11. Notice what they bring. Then take the silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speak the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God to speak to our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the text. Thank you for what you did in the earlier service and the wonderful response and the good crowd. And thank you for, uh, Lord, just this church. And Lord, many times this week I have, I have told you how thankful I am for this church and Lord, I meant every word of it. God, this church means the world to me. It means, uh, Lord, so much to my family. And I thank God for what you're doing at this place. Lord, I know there's uh, an abundance of people today that are traveling. There's an abundance of people today that are homesick this time of the year. Lord, there may be some visitors here today that are, that are just here. But Lord, I don't believe there's any accidents. I don't believe that there's, uh, Lord, any... Uh, Lord, uh, just happen chance that we just happen to, to come. But Lord, I know that there's always a divine purpose and reason. And Lord, today I pray that through your word, you will encourage us as children of God. And Lord, we thank you for all that you do and we'll praise you for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Zechariah 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 6, we have a series of eight visions. We're going to, uh, we just finished that vision just a moment ago, the vision of the riders on the horses with chariots. And all of them are given in one never to be forgotten night. All of that happened in one night. Last week we, 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 uh, talked about visions number, uh, six and seven. And this week we've talked about vision number eight. But I want to go back to Zechariah three, vision number four. Would you turn with me there? Because this has much to do with the latter part of Zechariah chapter six. I appreciate the comments that many of you have made. They've been encouraging to me. Some of you have uh, made mention about how you've uh, really learned a lot in this study and preaching this series through Zechariah. And I appreciate your kindness and your, and of course it's not me, it's all glory to God, but, but it does encourage the preacher to hear that people are getting fed and uh, they're responding. And so I praise the Lord uh, for that. Someone last week said, uh, I was preaching on the, the, the visions there in Zechariah. Zechariah 5, and I, I mentioned the first vision of a flying roll, and uh, someone came to me who'd been saved for a good while, and they said, preacher, all my life, all my Christian life, I thought that that was actually a piece of bread flying through the air. I never knew that was a scroll, because when you read it, it says a flying roll in, in my translation, and of course, uh, that, that would be, uh, in, 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 I guess, if you didn't really know, and you're just reading through that, you'd think, well, the Lord threw a roll in the air, and, and uh, maybe he had Thanksgiving on his mind, I'm not really sure, but it's a scroll, and, uh, and so, anyway, uh, I'm glad you're learning some things, even if you understood that it's not a roll and it's a scroll, that is actually an education, and we're thankful for that. Uh, but in Zechariah's uh, visions of, of one, really one through six in these chapters, uh, they're given in one night, and we've studied these visions, and involves, the, the third chapter involves a high priest by the name of Joshua. Now, we covered this vision. Joshua is standing before the Lord. He's the high priest. He's a spiritual leader. Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is standing beside him to accuse him. And Joshua, the high priest, was suffering the feelings of guilt and shame and inadequacy. He was a spiritual leader of Israel. He had been his tainted garments. They were filthy, the Bible says in verse number 3. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren, so he's accusing Joshua before the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, uh, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So he, he rebuked Satan, and the Lord who had chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. That's what he basically says. And it's not this man, uh, he calls him a, a burning a brand or a brand plucked out of the fire. So we, we preached about that, but I recount the rest of the story, the message of the chapter. And if we go down to verse number eight of, of Zechariah chapter three, I want you to look down with me in Zechariah chapter three and verse eight. Notice what he says. He says, hear now, old Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wandered at four. Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, here's what, uh, here's what Zacharias sees in this vision. The vision, though, he sees Joshua, the high priest, who was a real high priest at that time, who had journeyed from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem to help rebuild the, the uh, temple of the Lord with the help of Zerubbabel and, uh, and the rest of the, the 50,000 Jews. Uh, though he was a real high priest, this was symbolic. 
Joshua was not the one that was really uh, the, the significant part of chapter 3, nor is he the really significant part of chapter 6. The Bible says in verse 8 that I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Chapter 3 is not about Joshua. Like chapter 6 is not about Joshua. It is about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what else he says in verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engravings thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So verse 8 tells us that the high priest Joshua is just a symbol of someone who is to come. He was a type. He was a Christophany. He was a Christology in the Old Testament or a prototype of a coming Messiah, the branch. We see the branch even in the Old Testament uh, mentioned quite a bit. And this is telling us about symbolism and a messianic typology about the man, Joshua, and the high priest. He was one of God's chosen men in the Old Testament who served as a forerunner or a prototype type of Christ. Now today we're coming on the last part of chapter 6 of Zechariah and we begin to encounter this remarkable fellow, Joshua, the high priest of Israel. And for today's scripture reading, I, I, I see in this Zechariah chapter 6 and, and we stopped at about verse number 12, but look with me in verse number 13. Here's what he's going to do. The Bible says in verse 12 that he's going to build the temple of the Lord and then he reiterates that in verse 13, even shall he build the temple of the Lord and shall bear the glory that shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So God speaks to Zechariah. He says there's going to be some Jewish exiles that's coming and rebuilding the temple. They're going to be bringing some sizable contributions to you. I want you to take that silver and I want you to take that gold and I want you to make a crown, an elaborate crown crown and then I want you to take that crown and I want you to place it upon the head of Joshua the high priest now understand going back Joshua is just symbolic this story is not about Joshua but but placing the crown on a high priest now you would be sitting there just like I was I would think that the crown would deserve to go on Zerubbabel Zerubbabel is the governor he is an official of Jerusalem but that's not what the Lord wanted. The Lord said, I want you to place the crown upon Joshua, the high priest. Well, a crown is a symbol of kingship. And no person is supposed to be a king and a priest. But think about this. If this scripture is not really about Joshua and it's about Jesus, Jesus is a king and he is a priest. Amen. So we understand that this is symbolic. I want to just for a few minutes give you a few thoughts out of the latter part of Zechariah chapter 6 on crown him with many crowns. Crown him Lord of all. The first thing is this, and please stay with me because we'll get to the very end very quick. The first thing that I see in our text is found in verse number 12. Would you go back with me, Zechariah 6 and verse number 12. The Bible says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man. I, I wrote this in my in my Bible, right above that, Pilate said these exact words in John chapter 19. Pilate said, behold the man, right before he beat Jesus. 
And here Zechariah says, Behold the man before he crowns Jesus. Y'all see that? I hope you see that because it did, I did a little happy twist in my heart when I, when I read that. Oh, he's no longer the beaten lamb. No longer is he the beaten one. Now he's the reigning one. Oh, they beat him while he was here. They mocked him while he was here. They, they made fun of him while he was here. They, they made some, some thorns and, and put a little crown on his head and pushed him down on his head and, and blood ran down his face and they mocked him and they plucked his beard and they beat him to where no man could, could visibly make out who it was. Hey, but when Zachariah says we're going to crown him, hey, they're not going to be beating him here. Hey, the Bible says at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hey, the next time he comes, they're not going to be beating him. Hey, my friend, he's coming to rule and to reign. And Zechariah says, we're going to place a crown. Behold the man whose name is the branch. First, he's the branch of Israel. I want you to see in verse 12, he's called the branch. He's the branch of Israel. Here, he's the man whose name is the branch. He will branch out of his place. He addresses to Joshua, but it really wasn't about Joshua. It was about the symbolization of Joshua. It was about the symbolizing uh, Joshua really becoming the Messiah or the coming Messiah rather. He was called the branch and we see this title earlier for the Messiah in chapter three. It's common in the Old Testament name for Jesus and the significance of this is this. The Messiah will be a branch or a shoot that is springing up from the stump of David. Uh, think about this. It was, it was in God's sovereign plan to have a kingship from the lineage of David. King David uh, to have one of his descendants sit on the throne in Jerusalem. But a man by the name of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was uh, one of the, in the lineage of David. He was a king and Zedekiah died in Babylon which ended the Davidic kingship if you will. But Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 he says this about the coming Messiah. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I want to show you maybe what that looks like this morning about this stump or this branch that comes out. If you notice, there's a stump there. It's been cut off. That's when Zedekiah died. And uh, you would have thought that the kingship of, of David's line would have been done. But out of, according to Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot comes forth a branch that comes forth uh, in this kingship, if you will, of the Messiah. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I was in Israel a couple years ago, or actually in January of, of, of this year, I was in Israel with a group of pastors, and we were walking through uh, Nazareth, and, and we were in the old town Nazareth, and, and one of our tour guides says, I want you to notice this tree right here. And that tree had been cut down. And there was just a stump about this high, about the size of that speaker sticking out of the ground. And he said, I want you to notice something very biblical about this stump. And right beside that stump, out of the bottom corner of that stump, there was a shoot that came off. And he said, I want you to notice, do you pastors see what I'm seeing here? And one of the pastors raised his hand and he quoted Isaiah chapter 11. 
He said that is a perfect picture of what the coming Messiah who will rule and reign forever of the, of the line of David. And that is exactly what the Bible says in Zechariah 6. He is the branch. He is the offspring. He is coming from the stump of David. And God had promised King David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. But it wasn't Zedekiah. It was the Messiah. Jesus Christ would come and he would sit on the throne of David. And Zechariah says there's another aspect of the title of Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, behold the man whose name is the branch and he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. He's going to grow up out of his place. In other words, he will spread out. He's going to spread out. His influence is going to spread. He will be like a, a, a banyan tree that spreads over wide acreage, branching out from Israel unto his kingdom who covers the whole earth. He's not just going to reign in Jerusalem. He's going to reign the whole world. You understand that? So the second thing that I see, not only is Jesus the branch of Israel, but Jesus is the builder of the temple. Now, we see Zerubbabel's temple that's being built, but that's not the temple that the Lord is building. I want you to turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Just, I want you to see these verses, uh, verses in, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter number 2. And notice the temple that the Lord is building according to the Apostle Paul writing this church in Ephesus. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So Paul says, you're the temple. We know that. But then he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Aren't you thankful that Christ is the cornerstone? Amen. And we're built upon Christ. Notice in verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy what? Temple. This is the temple that Christ is interested in building. This is the temple, according to Paul, that groweth and builded fitly framed together. It groweth into the holy temple in the Lord. By the way, this is addressed to the church. Okay? So we see, let me just bring you in for a second. Though I'm in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 6, and we're talking about the, the literal temple of, of Zerubbabel, this, this temple that they're building, and we understand that Zechariah, and we understand this is the temple that Jesus would be in in a literal sense. That's not the temple that the Lord was interested in. The temple that the Lord is interested in is you. He's interested in building you, us, together. And by the way, what makes us together? The church of Jesus Christ. Boy, there's a lot to that. I wish you were home today. Y'all still on stuffing and turkey and dressing and everything else. Looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. But I like it. Peter tells us in First Timothy, or First Peter, rather, chapter 2 and verse number 4, that Christians are spiritual temples built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, built into a spiritual house for his glory. And so, by the way, we should not defile the temple of God. Amen. 
We should not do anything to, to hurt the temple of God. And by the way, uh, the world is seeing us. And when the world looks at us, do they see Jesus? Do they see Christ in us? Hey, when the world looks at our church, do they see a church that is, that is rightly dividing the word of truth? Do they see a church that is going forward in the days of, of decline? Are they seeing a church that is preaching the truth? Are they seeing a church that is unified for the gospel? Hey, there's a lot of application with that. Christ is interested in you. Aren't you thankful for that? He's interested in you. The other fulfillment is, is a prophetic thing. So yes, currently Christ is building his temple in us, but then there's a, a prophetic thing in the millennial reign of Christ. During the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth following the return, uh, there will be a great millennium temple. We, we, we know what that temple is going to look like. Some have already speculated that they're about to start this temple. I've got some different views on that. And we may, in a prophetic teaching setting, uh, give you some ideas about what I believe this temple is going to look like uh, going forward uh, during this millennial reign. Uh, it is described in Ezekiel chapter 40. You can go through Ezekiel chapter 40, and I believe you can go down through about chapter 48, and you can see some of the descriptions of this millennial temple. And I didn't say millennial falcon. Some of you perked up when I said millennial falcon, you Star Wars nerds and all. But uh, millennial temple, all right, millennial temple that is going to be constructed in, in Ezekiel. And Zechariah was saying this, don't be discouraged because the temple looks so small and looks so rigorous. I mean, compared to Solomon's temple, some were even sad. And they, the Bible says, and I believe it's in Ezra, that they wept because of the, the old temple was so elaborate and so nice. And now Zerubbabel's temple was much smaller and much less fancy. And people, while some shouted that the temple was complete, some years later, others wept because they remembered the prior temple. But let me just say this, the temple that will be constructed by the Lord and the millennial reign that will be put together is going to dwarf all of those temples. It's going to be very impressive. And so we see that he is the builder of the temple, both prophetically and currently. He's also the branch of Israel. He's going to branch and his reign will cover all the world. But lastly, Jesus is both priest and king. I want you to notice with me, if you'll go back to Zechariah 6, if you're elsewhere, I want you to look with me in verse number 13. He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. He shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall go between them both. And the, and the crown shall be to Helam and to Tobijah and to Jediah and, the, and, the, and to him, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial or a remembrance in the temple of the Lord. Hey, do you remember the days of Exodus? All the way back in the earlier Genesis, Exodus, the very beginning of the word of God. When Moses and Aaron led the children of Israel out of Egypt into Sinai, the desert of Sinai, and Moses was the political leader, and his brother Aaron was the spiritual leader. He was appointed the high priest of Israel, of the Jewish people. And there was a, a, an established dichotomy between these two roles. Moses would lead the people. God would speak to Moses, and Moses would deliver the word to uh, the people. And Aaron would sacrifice. Aaron 
Aaron was the high priest, he would go to God for the cleansing of the sins of Israel. And they worked together. Let me just show you a couple other pictures in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read the story of a king by the name of Saul. Saul is a king. He's about 30 years old when he begins his kingship. And two years into his king, he's about to fight the, the nation of the Philistines. They're down in the valley of Michmash, and they, they've come together, and, and Saul is down there. Well, there's a prophet by the name of Samuel. Samuel told King uh, Saul, he said, don't you fight the Philistines until I have returned, and when I return, you can offer a sacrifice, and then you can uh, go and fight the Philistines. They were the enemy of Israel. And so uh, Samuel's away, and uh, they're patiently awaiting. Well, during this time, there was at least seven days went by, and Saul was expecting Samuel to come back. And so his men started to get disheartened, and they, they began to lose morale, if you will, and they started going to different places and scattering. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 13, they began to scatter, and Saul sees his army start to dwindle. And so what does Saul does? Uh, what does Saul do? He grabs a, a sacrifice. Now he's the king. And Saul grabs a sacrifice and he says, hey, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, a king's not supposed to do that. And all of a sudden, when he completed the kingship there, or the, the, rather the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and Samuel rebukes Saul, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically looked at Saul and said, Saul, what you have done has been a direct disobedience to God. And because of that, your kingship is over. My hand will be removed. Folks, listen to me. And Saul basically said, I'd forced this. I got ahead of God. I, this is what I did. I panicked because you wasn't here. But my friend, listen, no king had any business offering up an, a sacrifice. No king had any business acting like a priest. Matter of fact, you'll see a similar story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 when a, a king by the name of Uzziah, he was a good king. The Bible says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He was 16 years old when he began to reign for Israel. But guess what? Pride settled in his heart. And what did Uzziah do? He walked inside the temple and he had uh, some incense, a, a scepter, uh, an incense in his hand. And he was going to go in and offer a sacrifice for Israel and the priests were behind him and the priests were like, Uzziah, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be doing this. And Uzziah gets mad at the priest because he wanted to sacrifice. Second Chronicles 26. And what does God do? God sends a curse on Uzziah and smote him and on his forehead, you can see leprosy. And the, and, the, and the king realized that God had judged him right there in the temple. And so those 80 brave priests who stood up to their king escorted him out. And guess what happened to Uzziah? A good man, but a, a man who got full of pride. They, he lived separate from his kingdom the rest of his life, and he died of leprosy. Why? Because he got the cart before the horse. Pride settled in his heart, and he said, I'm going to be a king, but I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to be a priest too. Can I say this? Could you imagine when, when, when uh, Zechariah takes that elaborate crown and places it not on the head of Zerubbabel, but he places it upon the head of Joshua? Could you imagine the gasp? Because those people remember the stories of Saul and they remember the stories of Uzziah 
And they're like, that doesn't work. He can't be king and priest. He can't do both. Those can't have harmony. That's not not what God intended. All the way back from Moses and Aaron, that's not what God intended. God wanted a king and God wanted a priest. But notice verse number 13. Notice this. And he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and he shall sit and rule upon his throne. So there's the king. And he shall be a priest upon his throne and counsel, the counsel or the harmony of peace shall be between them both. Now think about this. Just like those Jews remembered those stories and the gasp of them thinking the audacity of one to put a crown upon a priest's head, that this was not about Joshua. This was about the Messiah. All Joshua was, was a picture of the one who was coming. Because notice what happens, and stay with me. And the crowns, notice verse 14. And the crowns shall be to Helam, and to Tobijah, and Jedidiah, and to him, the son of Zephaniah, for a remembrance in the temple. So here's what happened, church, don't miss this. He then takes the crown off of Joshua the priest, and says, this crown belongs in the temple for a remembrance of what or who's coming. Y'all get that? There's one coming. Now, let me just say this. This is the same temple that Jesus would come to in Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John. This is the same temple. Nowhere in the Gospels do I ever see Jesus finding that crown in the temple and putting it on his head. Nowhere do I see in the Gospels that we find that someone found that crown and placed it upon Jesus, who is the king. He came as a king. He came as a priest. Jesus did come. We know that he's always been king. We know that he's always been priest. But you understand, no one here on this earth found that crown. I don't know what happened to that crown. I don't think anybody knows, but according to Zechariah, this crown was to be placed into the temple for a remembrance. Now, where? I have no idea. It could have been as you walked in, you could see that elaborate crown. This was going to signify the coming Messiah. We understand that he came into his own and his own received him not. We understand that when Jesus came, some of them did not recognize that he's Messiah. They still don't recognize that. But notice verse 15. Here's something prophetic. And they that are far off shall come. This is future tense and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, and this shall come to pass if ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. I've often, when I read that, especially in recent days preaching through this, I've often wondered what happened to that crown. We really don't know. It's never mentioned again in in the Old or New Testament. It never showed up in the Gospels. Jesus came 400 years after this event. He came into that very temple. He, He came as the king of the Jews. He came as the high priest of Israel. He came exactly the way Zechariah predicted that he would come. This is all showing us the one who is to come. But they did not receive him. And I wonder today, church, listen. I wonder today if someone here 
at this address under the sound of my voice needs to crown him as king of your life. What do we do with the crown? What do we do with this spiritual crown that's been made? Well, we make him king. See, here's what we've done in our own life. Here's the application. The application is often we have placed crowns on everything but Jesus. We've placed crowns on everything. We've placed crowns on politicians. Some of you talk about politicians more than you talk about Jesus. There's no crown. No man deserves to wear the crown that I'm speaking of right here. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Ah, listen, I'm all about us voting in a righteous politician or a good man. We know there's none righteous, but, but I'm, 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 a, I'm all about us voting in one that would uphold some morals and, and uphold the integrity of our nation and have some backbone. I'm all about that. And there's some, there's some good men, I'm sure, out there that are, that are good politicians and good righteous men that try to uh, uphold the standard of God's word. But you understand this. We are, are at a great fallacy when we take a crown and we place it upon a sinner. Amen? And we uphold that sinner and say, look at this guy. He's the answer. He's the solution. No, no, no. The only solution, he hasn't come yet. Amen. And when he does come, he's going to bring peace and he's going to bring, uh, but he's going to bring judgment first, but then he's going to bring peace and he's coming not as he came the first time. He's coming to rule and reign the second time. Amen. We understand that he is the Prince of Peace. He's the one that deserves the praise. He's the one that deserves the glory. And until we take that crown and place him upon the head of Christ in our own heart, and our own life, and we say, Lord, I'm going to submit to your authority, to your reign, to your rule. I'm going to, I'm going to submit to what you want in my life. Hey, we'll never be that thriving uh, child of God that we could be. Why? Because we're so carnally minded. Christ gets the back seat. He gets the very end. He gets the leftovers. My friend, listen, if anything, Jesus Christ deserves to have priority in our lives. We have misplaced priorities. I, I preached about that a little bit last week about those Jews that, that them exiled Jews that came over from Babylon that were born in Babylon and they brought all those things over from Babylon. Listen, misplaced priorities, messed up values, Hey, you, you, if you're not careful, we as Americans have it so good. We have it so good over here. We are blessed to be in the United States of America, and I thank God for that. But you understand that has hurt our Christianity. It has hurt our Christianity in the fact that we've never really suffered for the cause. In these other countries, they've had to face some opposition. They've had to face some, some, even maybe some martyrdom. And they've had to face some things in their life just to go to church and just to walk and the conveniences of an air-conditioned building and a heated building and to have a PA system and to have nice facilities. And a lot of these places, listen, they'll walk for miles to get to church. They'll walk through swamps to get to church. They'll stand for hours to get to church. And they'll not complain. Why? Because the word is going forth. And they have crowned him. Lord of their life. Here, if we don't have anything else to do, we'll go to church. We got so many pleasures and so many things. My friend, listen to me. Fill that void in your heart with Jesus. I read, I love baseball, read recently about one of the major league, uh, really one of the icons of major league baseball back in the 20s and 30s. His name was John McGraw. He served as the field manager for the New York Giants. That tells you how old this goes back 
in Major League history. He was called Little Napoleon because he, he managed more future Hall of Famers than any other manager ever did in baseball history. But I want you to listen to the way that his wife, Blanche, described him and his love for the game. Here's what she said. Life without baseball had very little meaning. It was his meat. It was his drink. It was his dreams. It was his blood. It was his breath. His very reason for living. Man, think about that. Now, nobody knew John McGraw like his wife did, and she said this was everything in his life. He was defined by baseball. And that spoke to me in a way that's really sad because this man, when baseball was over in his life, he was really nothing. He had nothing to look for, nothing to hope for, nothing to... And I thought, how many Christians are that way? We live for everything else in life, and Jesus just gets it, and one day we're going to see him face to face. I'd much rather give him crowns here and say, Lord, you deserve it all. You're worthy of it all. Than to get to heaven and hang my head saying, I didn't do anything, I live for self. I believe when we get to heaven and stand before the Lord, it's not going to be a joyous time. I believe there's going to be a lot of things that we could have done for the Lord. I believe that's what the judgment seat is going to be, that we're going to give account for the idle time, the idle things, the idle words that we could have, the things that we could have stood up, the times we could have stood for the Lord, we didn't. And I believe that's going to be sooner than we think. It'd be good if we said, you know what, Lord? While I'm living, while I'm breathing, I'm going to live for you the rest of my life. The rest of my life. I love the song, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. One day, our Lord's going to come. And as I said earlier, all the knees that have bowed to everything else but Him are going to bow to Him. The tongues that have profaned the name of Jesus and mocked Him and scoffed at Him, they're going to profess that He is Christ. It'd be good if us Christians would go ahead and bow the knee and proclaim that He is Christ. Why? Because He's coming. I love that song. I think it's the Gaithers. The King is coming. I believe the beginning of it, I hadn't heard it in a long time, but it sounds, like a, it sounds like a battalion of soldiers marching. Boy, it gets me cranked up, thinking that one day all the enemies of the world or all the world, the enemies of God, they're gonna, they think they're having their day today, but I'm telling you, it's, it's about to change. Christ is coming, isn't He? Let's, 